Good morning. You guys are much more lively than Italians. Thank you, Dodds. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Justin, and I am a church planter in northern Italy. I am one of two pastors in a recent church plant that was planted about uh, three years ago. My wife Carly is there in the back, I think somewhere, with the baby. Um, she's the love of my life, and uh, we have a son, Luca, who's nine months old. If you've met Luca, don't be offended by his scowl. He's not staring into your soul. He's just trying to figure you out. Um, he's very judgmental. <laughs> but with all my heart, I can say that we are honored to be here with you all this morning. We are honored because Sojourn Heights isn't just committed to church planting and equipping pastors in Houston, but globally they are committed to see churches planted in Italy. We would have never have imagined a couple of years ago that the Lord would bring us into a family like you all. And for that we are incredibly grateful. Incredibly grateful. We love you. And we are so happy to be here with you this morning. Today we are continuing to look in the Gospel of Matthew in this epiphany season. The word epiphany in Greek means reveal. And my prayer this morning is that Christ, that his identity is revealed to us this morning. So let's get started. There's a lady in our city back home in Italy whose name is Sylvia. Last summer, she started to come to our Sunday gatherings. She started coming to our weekly gatherings. And we've known her for a couple of years. She's a single mother raising a 15-year-old son. She started coming to our gatherings, and it seemed as if she was wanting to know more about Jesus. She was very excited about being a part of our community. And, uh, and it was great. We were excited because she was the first native of our city that showed interest in the gospel after a three-year relationship with her. And so she would come in and she would listen to sermons and, and she would come early to the Sunday gatherings and she would want to talk about her life and her problems and her struggles. I remember Carly trying to spend time with her over the weekend, getting coffee with her, trying to listen to her, her issues. And every time, I remember this so vividly, every time Sylvia would try to book the next meeting, she would try to fix a time in the future so that we could get back together and talk with her more. After a couple of months, though, she stopped coming. And when pushed by us as to why she wasn't interested anymore, her response was, I never came to church to be like any of you. I never believed in Jesus as you do. I came so that I would have community and I would have friends. And then she tried to fix a time where we could go and get a pizza with her, separate from church. She told us, I know it's kind of crazy, but I just, what, what you believe is too much for me. I can't accept that. And I think her response, no matter how troubling it was for us in those couple of months last fall, her response speaks to a deeper truth this morning to us now. Even though it looked as if she was excited and happy to know Jesus, she was only excited about what having friends would give her. She was only excited about what, what community could possibly do for her life. Sylvia doesn't want Jesus. 
She wants a friend. She wants someone who will understand her, someone who will be there for her, someone who will listen to her problems and her needs, someone who will be able to go through the storms of life with her. And I think she's tapped into something this morning that we can relate to. Maybe not all of us struggle with loneliness as Sylvia does. Maybe not all of us struggle with not having friends, but we do struggle with something. It may be insecurity. It may be the stress of a job. You might not have hope this morning. Whatever it may be, some of us are just thinking, if if God could just show himself to me, everything would be fine. And so the question for us this morning needs to be, when we face the waves of life, and we enter into darkness, periods of darkness into our lives, how do we respond? Who do we put, who do we find our identity in? Who do we seek, who do we go to for comfort, for peace, for hope? Because I think that if we were to ask Sylvia this morning who she finds her identity in or what she finds her identity in, she would not be able to answer that question. Matthew, the writer of our gospel text this morning, shows us that it's not just Sylvia that has an issue with identity, but the crowds following Jesus and his disciples themselves. Look with me at verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So our text is verse 22 through through 33. And I think the only way we're going to understand the meaning of of this text is that we have to understand what didn't happen in the previous miracle that Jesus performed. The crowds, they're gathering. They're gathering from all across the land. They want to know who this Jesus is. They've heard stories about him. They've heard that he's a miracle worker, that he has healed people. So I can only imagine that they bring their sick. They bring people who need healing. They've heard that he talks about the kingdom of God. Maybe he could do something for the nation of Israel. Maybe he could fight Rome on their behalf. And so they come in the droves, in the thousands, to listen to him. They come, he speaks to them about the kingdom of God. And as any other human being, that which is natural, they get hungry. They're hungry. So, Christ meets their need. He gives them bread. How do they respond? The Gospel of John, in chapter 6, John tells us that when he gave them bread, because he gave them bread, they responded this way. They were about to take him by force and make him king. And if you continue to read in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, you will see that the reason why the crowds wanted to make him king was not because he was precious to them, but because he was useful to them. He was a means to get their desired result. They wanted him to be their king, not because he was their bread, but because he gave them bread. They had this idea of Jesus and who he was supposed to be for them. So it didn't really matter who he said he was. What mattered is that he performed the miracle 
And he gives me what I need right now. How many of us, how many of us this morning, when we come to Jesus, when we meet Jesus, how many of us have ideas of him, preconceived notions of him, things we receive from our family and our culture and our nation? Do we come to him on his terms or on our terms? What are we thinking about when we, when we have Jesus in front of us? What's going through our mind? I can imagine in the crowd you had a, a big group of people that were thinking, he's just provided us bread, what else could he do for us? What else could he be for us? And then there are other people that were just hungry. They didn't really care about Jesus. They just wanted bread. They just wanted their stomachs full. Maybe there are some of you who are ready to accept Jesus based upon the terms that you have placed, based upon the terms you want for a life lived with him. Maybe there are a couple of you here who don't even have Jesus on the radar because your career is. Your career is that which you are pursuing. Your career is that which keeps the waters of your life calm. He's not even there. The crowds, the crowds wanted to make him king because, he, because of what he gave them. And the disciples apparently were coming to Jesus on their terms as well. They weren't stopping in all three accounts of this miracle. They weren't stopping the people from making him king. In fact, their silence speaks louder than words. So how does Jesus react to this? What does he do? He has thousands of people around him that he's just provided bread for and his followers, and they see him as someone that he isn't. So the scripture says, he dismisses the crowds, he puts the disciples in a boat, and he makes them row to the other side of the Sea of Galilee at night. He doesn't go with them. He's always gone with them. He doesn't go with them. And if the disciples could not understand his identity in being able to change the molecular structure of five loaves of bread into bread for thousands of people, how would they understand him? How would they see him in his true identity? Look at verse 23 with me. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The disciples aren't able to see Jesus on his terms, so he does something to make them see. He has to take the bread out of their hand and off their mind. And he has to put them in a situation where the only person they're going to be able to look to is himself. So after they've worked all day, imagine listening to the sermons, imagine being around all those people, and then the 12 of you have to feed these people. After they feed them, it's getting dark, he puts you in a boat and they start rowing. It kind of seems drastic on Jesus' part. Why would he make them do something like this? 
Imagine how the disciples felt. It was dark. They were wet. The wind was against them. Other scripture accounts say that it was a strong storm. So they were keeping this boat afloat, trying to reach the other side, rowing, rowing, rowing. This is not a situation that is safe for them. This is not something they want to face. If we were honest this morning, could we say that we might be in a similar situation? I'm not saying that we're in a boat surrounded by water, but you may be in a storm. You may be in a storm. You may be left alone in the dark. You may be alone. You may have recently just been pushed into the path of the storm that's coming, and you know it's coming. What is your storm? Family member has cancer? Loss of a job? Death? Suffering? There's always a storm. There's always going to be a storm. And it depends on how we react to that storm when we are pushed into it. What is your storm this morning? How do we react to it? Maybe we say, life's not fair. It's not supposed to be this way when I signed up to follow him. This is not what I had in mind when I chose to make him Lord of my life. I don't want that type of life. I want something else. What are we thinking when we enter the storms? What type of Jesus do we imagine walking with us and how does his identity change our situations and how we react to them because what Matthew is telling us is that Jesus will never come to us giving the Jesus that we want but he will always come to us giving us the Jesus that we need and that he truly is if you don't see him for who he is he will strip everything away from you so that you want him more than anything else in life. He will graciously bankrupt you so that you value nothing in this life except him. And this is where the disciples found themselves. This is where they were at. Look back at verse 24 with me. It says the disciples were left to themselves, battling the wind and the waves until the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night was a Roman term meant... 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. He doesn't just have them row for 30 minutes. They are trying to stay afloat for hours and hours. And if the Sea of Galilee is eight miles long, they weren't getting really far. Imagine that. Christ isn't just putting them in harm's way. He is bringing them to their breaking point. He is bringing them to their limit. The wind is against them. The wind is not stopping. The waves are not stopping. The boat is going nowhere, and I feel like I've come to the limit of my life. How many of us are at our breaking point? How many of us have been rowing now against the wind for months, maybe years, and the wind doesn't stop? You pray that it stops, but it doesn't stop. Verse 25 starts when the disciples are at their limits. 
something happens. Verse 25 says that Jesus came to them. Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. I'm sure they didn't say it that way. They probably shouted. And they cried in fear. They cried out in fear. Just think about this for a second. Jesus walks on the waves of the sea. How many science buffs do we have in here? Lots of engineers, I imagine. People aren't supposed to do this. People can't do this. People cannot walk on water. And this is why, this is why the disciples think he isn't a man. They think it may be a ghost. Maybe he's a ghost. Maybe Jesus is a ghost. But what we've been learning here in the past couple of months with the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew is trying to push a theme to us. And if we haven't understood that theme yet, we need to understand it now. Jesus is not just some ordinary man, and he is not a ghost. In fact, if we were faithful Jews at this time watching this scene unfold, we would have scriptures coming to mind from all throughout the Old Testament that speaks about the identity of Christ. Scriptures like when Job tells us that God alone stretched out the heavens and he tramples the waves of the sea, that he enters the springs of the sea and he walks in the recesses of the deep. Scriptures like when the psalmist tells us that God's way is through the sea and his path is through the great waters. The prophet Isaiah tells us that he makes his path in the waters, his way in the sea. And even if the disciples had these images that came to mind, they think he is a ghost until he speaks to them. When he speaks to them, they know who he is. Verse 27 But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, cheer up, it's okay, it is I, it is I, do not be afraid. When he speaks, everything changes for them. And the words, it is I, may seem to us Americans as some informal presentation, but the disciples would have thought of one story whenever he said these words. And that story is found in the Old Testament, the part of the Bible before the New Testament. In the book of Exodus, Moses, the leader of the people of Israel, goes before God and he says, what is your name? I have to tell these people what your name is. We need to know who your name is, what your name is. And God just says, I am. I am in Hebrew, it is I in Greek. Same correlation. This would have been the identity of, that was coming to their mind. This is the same I am that led the people of Israel through the Red Sea so that Pharaoh didn't slaughter them. The same I am that provided bread to the people of Israel in the wilderness so that they didn't starve. The same I am that Job speaks of that treads on the ways of the sea and he makes his path in the ocean. This it is I is not just some ordinary, hey, it's me. This it is I These words mean that he will not be some miracle worker for these people. He is not just some ordinary man. He is not a ghost. And he will not be a pawn for your benefit so that he can be made king 
for your ultimate goal and your ultimate end and not His. These are what these words mean. So why does Christ have to reveal Himself in this way? Why couldn't He just told them? Why does He have to push them out there and wait to the final hour to, to reveal Himself to them? Why couldn't He have just told them a couple of days before? Why couldn't He have told them with the bread? The Gospel of Mark says that He did tell them. Mark chapter 6, verses 51 and 52. The reason why He puts them through all of this is because they didn't understand His identity when He performed the miracle. They were astounded that He could walk on water because why? They didn't understand about the loaves. And their hearts were hardened. They were supposed to see Him as the glorious Son of God, the great I Am, when He changed in a meal for a boy into a meal for an army, and they didn't see it. He wasn't just performing a miracle. He was speaking about His identity through the miracle. They didn't see. They're excited. The people and the crowds I can imagine we're excited about Jesus. I can imagine the disciples being enthusiastic about Jesus. People can have great enthusiasm about Jesus, but he may not be the real Jesus. Think of your Jesus this morning. What kind of a Jesus is he? Is he a tolerant Jesus? Is he a socialist Jesus? A capitalist is he a Democrat? Is he a Republican? What kind of Jesus is he? Is he a cool Jesus? Is he an anti-Semitic Jesus? Is he a white racist Jesus? Reality hits. He's none of those. He's none of those. The disciples were around him. They were around him 24 hours a day. They slept beside him. They ate all of their meals with him, and yet they had wrong ideas of who he was. They did not understand who he was. And they may have thought that just because they were around him, they had him figured out. We're around him. We know who he is. When you are around Jesus, when we are around Jesus, do we find our identity in him? Or do we look to someone else or something else? Because if we are around him, but our real hope is in money, we will always be left wanting more and feeling that we don't make enough. If we are around him, and yet our real love is sex, then we will always desire intimacy with other people and the internet to fill that void that comes back every morning. If you're around him, yet your real identity is, is in your socioeconomic status, your ethnicity, then your identity will be temporarily satisfied as you feel superior to other races and other people. If you're around him, yet your real joy is being considered a person who is tolerant, 
a person who is open to all walks of life, a person that is, is open and ready for any type of people to be around you, that joy will be short-lived as you become angry and as you become intolerant to the very people you call brothers and sisters because you consider them bigots. If we are like Sylvia, who is around him, but we find our security coming from having friends and being loved by others, we will always feel alone. If you find yourself here this morning, like the disciples, not able to see him for who he is, he comes to you now. He comes to you now, and he says, don't be afraid of me. Don't be afraid of me. No matter how wrong your perceptions and your idea of me, no matter how misplaced they may be, it's okay because I am and I want to be your hope. I want to be your love. I want to be your identity and your security and your joy. I can be all of those because I am. And he can say that because he went through the storm of the wrath of God. He can say all of those things into your life today. On the cross, scared, alone, in the dark, tossed by the waves of pain and anguish, abandoned by his Father. Death by crucifixion brought asphyxiation, drowning above water. Do any of these things sound familiar to us? Do they sound familiar to the disciples in the boat as they're going against the waves in the darkness? Left alone. Does it sound like some of you here this morning? Does it sound like your life? He endured torture. He endured the waves of torture and pain so that we might not ever know pain and anguish. It wasn't for that. He endured all of that so that we might be made more like Him when we face that, when we go through the storms of our life. On the cross, alone. You just hear him saying, it is finished. It is finished as if, he, as if he says to the storm, peace, be still. And at that moment, the Son of God calmed the greatest storm that we could have ever faced. He calmed it. The wind ceased. The waves subsided. The waters were calm. He calms every storm. He calms the storms on earth. He calms the storms in your mind. He calms the storms in your heart. And if you don't believe him, his response would be, be still. Be still and know that I am God. Can we just be still and know that his identity, the power of his identity, is that which calms our storm. Everything changed for the disciples that night. Because it is here, after he walks to them on the water, after he talks to them, that they see who he really is. Verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, truly, you are the Son of God. The first time in the scripture here that they've said this in this gospel. 
So when the disciples see Jesus as the Son of God, they worship Him as the Son of God. They don't worship Him for bread. They don't adore or praise Him for any sort of benefit He can give them by being their, their, their makeshift king. They worship Him because of who He really is. How do you worship Him? How do we worship Him, Sojourn? Do our lives reflect lives that are captured by the Son of God? Because true worship, true worship is that which is going to change the heights. It's going to change your neighborhoods. The winds of people's lives will die down when they worship Him as their God. So as you multiply parishes as a church, as a community of people that are, that are committed to multiplying, committed to growing, our question primarily doesn't need to be how many people do we need in order to multiply a parish? Our question primarily needs to be how many of us who are captivated by the Son of God are willing to go against the waves into darkness and row into a place that is difficult and hard for us and brings us out of our comfort zone in order that people truly see Him as He is. A place that brings you out of what you know and hold dear. Maybe danger. Maybe relationships in your parish that you just don't want to have to bear. You don't get along with these people. I don't want to go to that parish. I don't want to multiply out. How many of you will get in the boat with Carlos and row to the East End? How many of you will get in the boat and row to Spring Branch with Tony? What is our missional vision? Because our missional vision doesn't need to be how many churches will cover Houston. That will happen in God's timing. Our missional vision needs to be when the bread stops being served and the crowds are being dismissed and it gets dark and it seems as if nothing is going well for Sojourn Heights and you feel as if Jesus isn't with you. Will all of you find your identity in the Son of God? Because it will happen. And when it happens, you need to be firm. As I close, some of you may be looking at this passage and ask, okay, so why didn't you talk about Peter? (laughs) Um, What about his lack of faith? What about him walking on the water? Well, I didn't mention him this morning because this morning's text, I don't think, I don't think he's the center of it. I think Jesus is. And I think that's Matthew's point all along. However, I do want to mention something about Peter. Peter usually gets a bad rap from people because he's always seen as being weak and not having enough faith to, to walk on water. But I don't think that this is Peter's real identity. You know, Peter can walk on the water towards Jesus because his reality and his faith is rooted in the fact that he is going to the Son of God. That is what is keeping him afloat. And so Peter knows that if he's distracted, that if he doubts, that if he starts to fall and his eyes aren't on Christ, Christ 
the Son of God, the great I Am of the universe, will reach down and pick him up. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if Peter is a man with a lot of faith or a man with a little faith. Christ, the Son of God, will save both. Maybe you're in the midst of your storm right now and you feel as if, if I just had more faith, He would answer me. If I just showed more faith, He would help me. What Peter shows us is that Christ's identity to us doesn't change based upon the measure of our faith. So if you cry out, He will save you. You don't have to wait. You can cry out now. And He will save you. Peter cried out because Jesus was the center of his story. For many of us, we'd like to believe that that the Son of God is the center of our story. We truly desire to love him, but our attention is so carried away by the winds. It's, It's always on the winds. It's always on the storm and the waves. We are tired. We are tired and it is dark and it just feels as if Jesus isn't with us. A couple of us may be thinking, if he were just here now, if he would just show himself to me now, if he would just speak to me now, the wind would die down. What if the darkness doesn't go away? Do you still see him as the son of God? What if the pain doesn't end? Who is he to you? I want to read an excerpt from a book by a great writer, the woman of God, Anne Voskamp. Many of you may know her from her book, 1,000 Gifts. I encourage all of you men and husbands to read her just as much as the women do. She speaks about her experience in darkness. And she writes, It is in the dark that God is passing by. The bridge in our lives shake, not because God has abandoned, but the exact opposite. God is passing by. God is in the tremors. Dark is the holiest ground, the glory passing by. In the blackest, God is closest, at work, foraging His perfect and right will. Though it is black and we can't see, and our world seems to be free-falling and we are utterly alone, Christ is most present to us. I think she has it right. I think that when the Gospel of John tells us that the Son of God comes into the world as light in darkness, what he's saying there is not that darkness ever goes away. But the good news for us this morning is that there is light in darkness. It's not just darkness. There is light. Do you believe the Son of God? Do you believe that He is with you right now in your life? in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your suffering and your loss. In your anxiety for that, for that job that you've been hoping and praying for. Are you thinking about the job or are you thinking about Him? Because God is in the midst of your storm now. And His light treads on the waves of your darkness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your light. 
thank you for your son. Thank you that we can find our identity in him. Thank you that what we have in common is that we are all sinners saved by your grace. And that we can call out to our father. And you will reach out and pick us up. I pray for those of, for those of you who are here. I pray for you now that you find healing that you find peace in the midst of your storm. And Jesus, I ask you that you are our peace. That you do calm the winds of our storm now. That you would be ever present to us. In your name, amen.